Galatians chapter 5. Let's read this together. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, and I'm going to read just through verse 17, but we're going to actually reference through verse 26 this morning, okay? This is what the word of the Lord says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. May God just bless the hearing of this word, the illuminating that we might have understanding, and ultimately our obedience in applying these things that we might give ourselves to freedom, to live free in Christ. So um, this morning, I think appropriately, uh, I want to open up with um, one that is a little bit cliche illustration, but nonetheless, I want to open up with uh, the words of what I believe probably is one of our most eminent ethicists of our day, set to perhaps the most popular anthem to freedom that we have heard in our day. Many of you will recognize it immediately, but I'm not going to even try to sing this, okay? So don't, don't fret, but I'm just going to read the, ver- the, the words. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And then everyone breaks out into the chorus, and it's... Let it go, let it go, right? Okay, some of you recognize that immediately because you have likely been tortured by this, okay, in your household at some degree. And if you're in some ways unfamiliar with this song, I am truly baffled by, by this. Um, it, it's likely that if you know any actually teenage girl at this point, I guess, since it's several years old, but especially any any. Any girl around the age of 2 to 12, you are all too familiar with this song, likely. Um, Actually, the artist came out in apology several years ago for this song, I believe, to parents. So, if you're, you're likely familiar that this is a song tied to the author, Princess Elsa. I'm not sure which one of you made her angry this morning. Maybe it was me, but nonetheless, it's a fitting illustration in many ways. So, this Disney anthem as well as the narrative of the character that it, that it finds its source in, I believe is a fitting illustration for this topic that we are going to venture in throughout the text of uh, Galatians as we consider what fr- it truly means to live free. I think it's a fitting illustration also of how we are to understand our, most of our current conceptions of freedom. Okay? And the struggle that we have to reconcile these things in our minds and our lives. Okay? You see, today, freedom is much th- thought of much like what Elsa articulates. It's thought of as an unrestrained self-assertion or power of choice oftentimes. But the question is, is this actually a true and functional view of freedom? Or is there something else that we must consider here? And so this morning, I want to 
I want to kind of, I'm going to warn you, or disclaimer, the front of this sermon is kind of loaded heavy with kind of unpacking and articulating great and kind of building a framework to understand freedom. And then we're going to unpack what that looks like in the Christian life through Galatians 5. And I'm going to give you through three points. And the three points are uh, that Christ is the cause of our freedom, diligence is the way of our freedom, and love is the rule of our freedom. But before we go there, we have to look at freedom itself. So, if this is our current conception of freedom, is it actually a functional and true understanding of freedom? The problem with this is that we are never without constraint. We have always, there's always some sort of ruling, regulating authority over us, is there not? Even if it's in ourselves. Because even within ourselves, we have conflicting desires, right? If we're all honest with ourselves. Take, for instance, by example, just go to the doctor, right? Um, the older you get, the more you have to weigh out and restrict one desire over the other. The doctor can tell you, you must change your habits or prolong your life and your health. So he must, a man, that man is suddenly facing two constricting desires that he has to choose one or the other. So freedom cannot be com- without constraint, unrestrained, power of choice, because even within us there are conflicting desires. So we're left with this question. What is freedom? And what does it truly mean to live free? How are we to understand these things in light of the gospel of grace? And so from Galatians 5 this morning, I want to venture with you to consider, and this is the main point, I believe, of of Paul's argument from Galatians, as well as the main point of this sermon, that Christians live to serve others in the joy of their freedom in Christ. Christians live to serve others in the joy of their freedom in Christ. You see, Christians live in the freedom Christ has secured by walking according to the Spirit. So I'm going to give you a couple of definitions throughout this sermon that hopefully will illuminate freedom for us just a little bit more. And the first one is this. Okay? Christian freedom is a liberated conscience from attempted autonomy. Okay? Now, basically that word autonomy just comes from the, the words, uh, the Greek word self and the Greek word law. And so essentially, the gospel frees us from our attempts at making a self-law, at having our own law for justification. Okay? This is what Paul's getting at here. And so I like, to, I like really, really easy to understand illustrations. To, so I'll, I'll give you an illustration that I think fits this well. Maybe this will be a little bit more to, easier to wrap your mind around if you're like me. Um, Paul talks about two forms of attempted autonomy that ha- happens in our lives. And we're going to look at these in the text as well, but also just reference some. But um, the first one is an obligation to perform in the law to seek image, achievement as a means of validation. They seek glory and empty accolades. So it's our performance and our productivity that is actually the means by which we seek validation. And so our lives are all ceasing, fasting, if you will, um, and no feasting. And then the other obligation tends to be the obligation to indulgence, the flesh, 
is what the scriptures use in this sense. And so it seeks the stomach or the desires as the means for validation. Paul talks about both of these in the book of Galatians. And so this, seeks, this one seeks glory in its own deprecation, actually, and it's all feasting without any ceasing. So I told you I was going to give you an illustration of these two that kind of helps me get my mind around these. And uh, I went back, and it's actually it's been an illustration that resonated with me so much it stuck with like me the last seven to eight years. Um, it was given um, by one of my ethics professors in, in graduate school, and he said he had two pets that really illustrated to him these two extremes, okay, a dog and a cat, okay? If you're cat people, I'm sorry, I might offend you this time, but we're going to also be very truthful about dogs here as well. So dogs, what? They usually feel more enjoyment where? Outside the boundaries. You give a dog a bath, what immediately happens? They get out, they start wallowing in something they shouldn't be wallowing in immediately, and they've just completely nullified the bath altogether, right? They often wander from all boundaries. They end up messing something up including perhaps themselves. And if you know anything about a dog, a dog can easily find dead things. And when a dog finds dead things and brings that dead thing into its dwelling place, it's very difficult to pry that dead thing out of that dog's, you know, ownership, if you will. And this is the picture of the licentious person. This is the person that's driven by their desires. This is the person who understands freedom as unrestrained indulgence. And so the biblical example of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul addresses the Corinthians who actually had a saying to justify their understanding of freedom. They said it in this way. They said, the stomach is for food and food for the stomach. And so basically what their philosophy was built around in this understanding of freedom is the desire is there and so is the means to participate in that desire. So why not partake? Why not partake? I have the desire, I have the means to indulge in this desire. Why not partake? But Paul questions this and says, just because you could do something doesn't always mean you naturally should do something. Right? And so he says, he says, the stomach is not sovereign. That's the trouble with this. Stomach doesn't determine what is good for itself, right? It just naturally craves things. Paul's response to them is that God is the origin of the stomach and all of our desires. And so using them both, food and the stomach, according to the maker and designer of those things is actually how it is meant to flourish. So Paul nuances freedom as functioning within design, according to design. And that's where it flourishes. But then there's another, another kind of ditch that we tend to run off in, right, that's illustrated in the cat. If you've ever been around cats, you've had a cat, maybe you're more familiar with them than I am. But what do cats usually do? They keep to themselves. They're often very rigid and restricted. They rarely leave. They're rigorously self-appointed boundaries. And they're often being afraid of 
dog-like lack of restraint. They tend to look out. If you've ever been outside and there's been a cat in the house, they're usually sitting in the window kind of staring out at you, right? Almost condemningly, you know, looking out at you or just creepily maybe. Um, And while other people enjoy outside and yet not somehow not bringing themselves to venture, venture out themselves. Again, these are caricatures, but nonetheless good illustrations. I'm going to go ahead and apologize for this part of the illustration, though, but just like the dog tends to find dead things and cherish dead things and bring dead things in, the cat, however, doesn't even leave the house to poop, right? The cat even messes within their boundaries. And nobody wants to clean that up, right, if we're all honest. And so the idea here is that they're so constricted and restricted that they never venture out and never actually enjoy freedom. There, there, there's a fear that drives their constraint, a fear of the dog's like self-restraint that they lack of self-restraint that they bring it to the other extreme. This is the legalistic person that Paul is addressing in Galatians primarily. Galatians chapter 2 verse 4, he's specifically addressing these ideas and throughout the book. Paul addresses the Galatians who had added conditions to the gospel. You must believe in Jesus and be circumcised. You must believe in Jesus and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. This is what the Galatians had done. They'd added conditions to the gospel. But in their adding of conditions to the gospel, they actually wound up nullifying the gospel altogether. Because the gospel plus anything equals a non-gospel. And so this is what Paul's getting at. If you can add righteousness in and of yourself effort, then why do you need any other righteousness outside of you to begin with? If it was in you to better yourself and justify yourself by your own actions, why did you need Jesus in the first place? You don't. So you've undercut the gospel when you add something to it. And so both of these are attempts, both of these these attempts of autonomy are really just attempts at self-justification that ultimately lead us into an inevitable bondage. Because here's, here's, here's why this is the case. is because a retreat into inwardness in any of these occasions never produces freedom. Because that's what both of these are, a retreat into inwardness. And these don't bring freedom. And so the biblical understanding of freedom is this. Freedom means freedom from self and therefore from the law which delivers up our fallen existence in and of itself to ruin. That's what freedom is. So now I want to transition to the three principles for living free from Galatians chapter 5. The first one is this. Christ is the cause of our liberty. We see this in Galatians 5 verse 1 and Galatians 5 verse 13 specifically. Freedom is secured in Christ. Notice the passive language here. For freedom, verse 1 of chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set you free. You've not done this on your own. Verse 13 of chapter 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers. This is not in and of ourselves. This is not self-actualized freedom. This is something that is foreign to us that we've been brought near by another. And so these texts show us that Christ is the means and the goal of freedom. 
He's the means by which we, we come to freedom, but he's also the end of our freedom, that we're called to life in him. And so freedom can't be self-actualized. And so what happens in the law is the law is a diagnostic tool, not a remedy. The law shows us our need for righteousness and points us to where righteousness might be found. It cannot bestow righteousness upon us, Paul says. So we stand condemned under the law. But Christ has done what the law could not do. God, being fully righteous, has come to take upon himself our guilt and our void of righteousness to cancel it out in his debt, in his death, rather, and then to liberate us from that debt in his resurrection, and we receive that by faith. And so this is the gospel. This is the good news. We're validated and vindicated, not by our own records, not by our own performance, not by our own indulgence even, but by the record that is spoken over us in grace. And so this is received by faith. And so we're free from seeking this validation vindication in our own self-appointed means by keeping the law. So ultimate validation and enjoyment then, therefore, is not found in our own self-imposed constructions, but in what has been declared over us in the gospel. You see, Christ undoes our bondage by nailing it forever to the cross. It's dead, friends. It's dead. It has no power over the Christian. We're now no longer under law, but under grace, Romans tells us. If we're in Christ. So we're justified, no longer needing to seek justification, validation, or anything of the sort in anything having to do with dutiful personal productivity or personal indulgence, but now unobstructed to actually delight in what's delightful. That's freedom. Unobstructed from delighting in what's truly delightful giving ourselves completely mind, spirit, and soul, and body, rather, over to what is truly delightful. And so freedom, here's another, here's another definition for you. I told you I'd give you these. By theologian John Stott, he says this, freedom then is in Christ the believer's release from all that restrains unhindered devotion of God and worship of him. Unrestrained. It's the release from everything that restrains unhindered devotion and enjoyment and worship of him. And so rather than claiming us for dutiful obedience, Christ now claims us to a free obedience. And that shows itself in a growing process of being emancipated from the things that once took hold of us, from from the things that once condemned us, and plunging us into what's truly delightful in him. What we were created for, what we were designed for, and that is to know and become like him. So Christ is at the center of freedom. It's not self-appointed, self-defined Self-achieved, it is bought for us. Christ is the means and the goal of our freedom. Otherwise, we just, self, we just fabricate that in ourselves. That's what Paul's getting at. So Christ is the 
origin and the cause of our liberty. But notice this, diligence is the way of our liberty. If you've walked with Christ for any length of time, you've come to the harsh realization undoubtedly that it is difficult to abide in the gospel. It's difficult to walk by grace. The song we sang just a moment ago testifies to this reality. Our hearts are prone to wander. I feel the gravity that tends to pull my heart away from this freedom in Jesus. So abiding in freedom requires care. It's intentional. It's difficult. Paul's writing to Christians saying this. So in verse 1 and verse 13, he, said, he uses this sort of language. Stand firm, friends, however, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And in verse 13, do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. This is, this is language of intentional diligence here. It's difficult to stand on the gospel. So what Paul's saying to us is we can't be free and be careless. It requires that we be steadfast. It requires that we be firm. It's actually easy for us to find ways to run freedom into the ditch. You've discovered this undoubtedly about yourself like I have. If, you run off, if, you ever, if you've ever run off in a ditch and then you jerk the wheel back the other way is what tends to happen. Sometimes you go across the road altogether and you wind up in the other ditch, right? It's an overcorrection. Oftentimes, our hearts do this, Right? That it's easy for us even to run from one extreme to the other, right? Let me give you an example of this. Entitlement. I see this so much in my own life. That the entitlement functions from a position of self-law of performance to a self-law of permissive indulgence. Have you noticed this? And so I work hard so I can excuse blank. I work hard so I can overlook the way I respond to my family when we're together at the end of a hard day. These sort of entitlements, friends, are, I mean, we see it in our lives. We're just so prone to wander from these things. After all, Paul's writing to a group of Christians, so Galatians shows us how much we, even as Christians, can easily turn freedom into bondage and slavery. This is not what our Lord means for us. Isn't that good news? It's so good news. So the principle Paul gives to us is this, that in verse 13 and 14, that not every opportunity is always an opportunity that results in our good and our flourishing and in our freedom. Just because it's there doesn't mean it always results in liberation, in enjoyment, in freedom, Right? Opportunity often leverages ease and availability for the loss of liberty. You've seen this in your own life, right? Undoubtedly. Ease and accessibility often result in the loss of liberty, not the gaining of liberty. And so bondage often can come with ease, friends. Surely this is one of the enemy's best strategies in our life. You see, we have an enemy who wants to destroy us by enslaving us. And so as the reformer Martin Luther once said in his, Galatia, his uh, commentary on Galatians, he says this on this passage, the devil lies in ambush and seeks to deprive us of our liberty of the spirit or to brutalize it into liberty of the flesh. We have an enemy, a world, as well as our own flesh that seeks to keep us in bondage. 
And so opportunity used here in verse 13 is actually the Greek word that was used throughout um, common language to describe the beginning of a swift and hostile military movement. It was used military language, okay? It was the common usage of this word. And so in the New Testament, it's also used in Mark chapter 5, verse 13, and on and on to describe these violent movements uncontrolled by reason. And so specifically in Mark chapter 5, verse 13, it's used when Jesus casts out the demons into the flock of pigs. And this sudden, unrestrained, illogical process began. That's the way... Loss of liberty creeps into our life through opportunity that often can become the beginning of a swift and hostile, uncontrolled movement, lacking reason. I see this in my own life. I think um, by illustration, there is perhaps no more subtle, no more conflicting area that we see this in our life than um, in the area of technology. Um, And I'm not condemning technology. I'm using quite a bit of technology right now. Um, Technology simply uh, helps us to do things better with ease um, and accessibility. But unfortunately, it also, just like it can help us in healthy things, it can also propagate deformed views of things. And so The way that accessibility and ease in technology leverages itself oftentimes is that it actually exacerbates our malign views of freedom. And so Andy Crouch, in his book, The Tech-Wise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place, which is actually on our resource wall. I'd highly commend it to you. You'll go there looking for steps in discerning how to, to discern and walk wisely using technology, and you'll come away with much more. Okay, But here's what he says. He says, he says it this way. Um, he says that while technology is meant to help us in our human endeavors, they often become avenues to further our bondage. As our lives have been filled with more of technology's promises of easy everywhere, we do less and less of the things that human beings were made to do. The rhythms of work and rest that are essential to our human flourishing often topple over into distortions of Toil and leisure. And toil and leisure, he says, is not, orig- is not just a new thing that came about as a result of technology, but our ease- easiness that technology promises can make that even more prominent. And so he says this, work goes to toil. And I would say this is an expression of the law. Bondage to the law. Work, the fruitful transformation of the world through human effort and skill in ways that serve our shared human needs and give glory to God, topples over into toil. An excessive, endless, fruitless labor that leaves us exhausted with nothing valuable to show for our effort. Work that is often done in wisdom and with courage together with one another becomes toil that's done in unrelenting accessibility and demand that often afflicts and divides us from others. So that's one form of our malign, deformed understanding of freedom. The other would be we go from rest to leisure. This would be flesh. 
the sarks, okay? So rest, the ceasing from our labors to deliberately delight in the fruits of our work for everyone's worship and enjoyment instead of the restorative rhythm of rest, we get leisure, which Crouch defines as this, the fruitless escape from labor. That's what, that's, if you want to discern what leisure and rest are, is that leisure is just an escape. Okay? It's not restorative. It's just a numbness. Okay? And so unlike rest, leisure isn't restorative to our soul. It doesn't restore our relationships with others. It doesn't enrich our soul and our walk with, with God. Leisure usually comes at the expense of another. Usually an expense of another's toil, thereby exacerbating the problem all the more. And so leisure is purchased from our fellow man who must labor to provide these experiences of our entertainment and our rejuvenation. See, friends, we have a yoke at every turn that seeks to enslave us. Even the healthy rhythms of work and rest. And so we must be diligent in our freedom. Our habits have a discipling effect upon us. So we must ask of everything that we approve, give approval of or habit we have in our life, are, we being, are they being ruled and ordered by our freedoms or are they ruling over us in our freedoms? Because if we don't teach ourselves and our kids how to enjoy freedom, then there is a world and a flesh and an enemy that would gladly do so for us. So how often does freedom escape us because we have some perceived great opportunity that's come our way? And so due to the growing demand, I told you I was going to give you a shameless plug. Due to the growing demand of technology in our life, and this is the area that parents in our ministry have identified as the number one area that they have trouble shepherding their students and their families in most, is how to approach the growing demand of technology in our life. LifePoint wants to partner with families to provide training, equipping, and encouraging families to be intentional about things like technology in our homes. So we're investing greater resources in our meta weekend that's coming up to maximize our reach and participation among students and families um, during a portion of a meta event. So it'll be a workshop, like I said earlier, for families as well to, to have these conversations facilitated among families to discern these things and consider these things. And it will be on Saturday the 3rd of February from 8.30 to 2 p.m. So 5th grade, that'll be open to 5th grade to 12th grade, not just the 7th through 12th grade, as well as their families to take part. Okay? You can find all that information out in the kiosk. Okay? And it will be led by an organization called AXIS, which is an organization that specializes in helping students and parents think biblically about cultured media and technology all around an engaging presentation. And so I hope you'll take advantage of that resource. So we want to walk together and have a conversation through training and resources that help us and strengthen us to faithfully walk in Jesus in all of our life. And so it takes diligence to walk in freedom. So what's the answer to all this? The answer is this, we must discipline ourselves for freedom. 
We must stand on the right things. And what's the right thing? It's the gospel. So how are we diligent in our liberty? Paul answers it for us in verses 25 and in verse 16. In that whole section, he says this, walk in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit that's given you life in your life. So, our, so he says this, and this is a paraphrase, basically, of verses 16 to 26. Our desires for Christ will keep us from destructive desires of the flesh, or destructive desires of the flesh will keep us from Christ. We must ask ourselves, which one will we restrict and constrain, and which one we will give approval of? And so this means giving approval to liberating desires in place of enslaving desires. Finding liberating constraints by walking according to the objective word of God's subjective application in our life through the Holy Spirit. That's the key to walking in freedom. When I give approval to right affections, right thoughts, and right actions, that's when I live free. And so, students, if you're in this room, my heart and my desire for you is not that I would just tell you what to do. But I want to hold up what truly is good and say run after that. With all that you can because Christ frees you to run after it unhindered in every way. And when you do that, you give yourself to what's truly good. But notice this, it's not just for you. It doesn't just wind up being a blessing to you. Love has an effect on others. So this leads us to our third point, that love is actually the rule of our liberty. Verses 13 through 15, Paul walks through this for us. Freedom is restrained by love. It's for others. It's not just for us, but it's for others. That's what freedom is actually best enjoyed, right, when it's shared, when it's shared. And then he goes on to say the law is actually condensed into this one act, love your neighbor, Love your neighbor as yourself. So he plants the great commandment as the ruling authority over our freedom. So spoiler alert, if you've not seen Frozen, um, by the way, um, which is, that, that'd be sad, right? Um, ultimately, the, this is the lesson that Elsa learns at the end, right? That love is the right expression of constraining freedom. And so Paul, this is why Paul goes on to say this. He says, serve one another. After saying, don't give, the, don't give opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. Your right expression of freedom actually serves your brother. And so to serve means to voluntarily bind yourself to one another through subjection to one another in love. So the great commandment tethers our freedom. It instructs our liberties because here's what, it, here's what it means. The answer to the question of what is best for me always is the same answer for what is best for my neighbor. What's best for my brother? And as the, as the reformer uh, John Calvin says it this way, he says, Love restrains liberty from breaking out into wide licentious abuse. And so Paul, within this text, gives us a warning that false freedom is actually corrosive to community. 
This is in verses 13 to 15. Notice the reversal of the one another passages. Are you familiar with these? Bear with one another at all times. Encourage one another. All of these supporting, affirming things that the church and the community of grace is meant to do. Notice the reversal that happens here in verse 15 that are present in the church in Galatia. Instead, driven by their self-assertion, they bite one another, cause harm to one another, they devour one another, they eat up, they feed off, they exploit out of their hungers and their yearnings, and then they consume one another. They use up, they destroy. This is a language of hatred, friends. And so as uh, the early church father, uh, John Chrysostom, put it in his commentary on this passage, he says, bite, which denotes an angry person, but likewise devour, which denotes one who persists in wickedness. He who bites has exhausted his angry passions, but he who devours has given a demonstration of extreme cruelty. This is what happens when we have a maligned, malformed view of freedom. And so legalists, by their over-constraint, wind up actually seeking their own self-assertion. One theologian puts it this way, if growth is built on repressed guilt or as a means of growth, the set of, uh, of following a set group of rules or following an intricate or artist path to be mastered, then spiritual self-centeredness is the natural result. You see, they don't actually, legalists don't actually like being around each other. Have you ever noticed that? The air is very thin. They don't like cleaning up after themselves like cats, and nobody wants to clean that up, right? Likewise, the licentious, in their careless disregard for one another, actually wind up running over one another. And so when freedom's understood as self-assertive power of choice, it not only results in our own personal bondage, but it exploits and destroys our neighbor, friends. Those that are closest to us, it's corrosive to community. It creates the opposite of a redemptive community. And so a malformed view of freedom results in a toxic malformation of the great commandment. So when we begin, but listen to this, when we begin to know true freedom in community with others, we actually learn how to give up ourselves for others, like Christ did, to secure our freedom. That's the gospel, right? Jesus did that. And we begin to learn, as a result, the nuances of freedom from one another, becoming less self-assertive and more self-giving. And this is why the church is ultimately important because the church is built around for freedom, that, uh, that we might walk unhindered together in life in Jesus. And so freedom's not really found in letting go of all constraint, but, con but standing together in the gospel unhindered and letting go of anything that might stand in the way of that. Free to enjoy and to risk for all of God's best in our devotion and worship of him. To live free, we must let ourselves be controlled by a merciful Savior whose burden is light and whose yoke is easy. And so if you wish to give yourself, friends, to all that is good, if you wish to give yourself to freedom, then you must belong to Jesus. Say yes to him. May we live, therefore, unhindered 
in our devotion and worship to Christ in every choice, in every step of our lives, because those whom the Son has made free are free indeed. Let nothing stand in the way of this freedom, friends. Brothers and sisters, may we live free indeed. So Christians live to serve others in the joy of their freedom in Christ as they walk according to the Spirit. As the worship team returns, I want to ask this question of you. Is your life being lived unhindered in your devotion to Christ? Are there any areas of your life, perhaps, that are obstructing that in your life? Would you let go of those things that we might live free in 2018? Does our life look more like something like toil and leisure, or will it look more like rest and work? Let me pray together, and then we'll stand and sing.